I was sitting there waiting for the liturgist to read this, and I remembered that person isn't here. That okay. Let us listen for the word of God. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God. Thanks be to God. All right, friends, there is strength in weakness and wisdom for fools. And isn't that great news? Because I don't know about you, uh, but I know sometimes I can be weak and sometimes I can be a little foolish. Now, uh, let me be brutally honest. Let's just, just say it like it is. We are all fools. <laughs> we are all weak. Uh, does it sound upside down and inside out to admit that? In today's gospel lesson, we have some foolish words uh, from Jesus, the Beatitudes. And these also uh, are some of, those, some of my favorite texts that I highlighted in the Bibles for the kids. Uh, Blessed are the poor, the meek, those who mourn. But if we really stop and think about it, <laughs> do they make a lot of sense? Those are kind of foolish uh, words. Jesus, come on. Uh, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you? Really? Today we look at the foolish wisdom of the gospel. Uh, these beatitudes make no sense. This is just plain foolishness, Lord. Uh, that's the strange wisdom of the gospel of Christ, the upside-down world of the kingdom. Uh, as Brian Moyer Suderman puts it in a children's song, once loved in our house by a two-year-old when she was two, uh, he sings, when you learn to follow Jesus, you act a little strange. You act a little strange. You act a little strange. When you learn to follow Jesus, you act a little strange. People stop and take a look. Foolishness is wisdom. Wisdom is foolishness. Weakness is strength. Strength is weakness. When I hear Paul's words from his letter to the church at Corinth, I, I picture a medieval court jester dancing around, taunting and jabbering the kind of nonsense that is, in fact, uh, perfect sense. Uh, Richard Rohr minces no words when he describes the court jester as the only person who could tell the king that he was full of malarkey 
and do so with impunity. The jester oftentimes was the only one who could tell the emperor he had no clothes. Paul sounds a little like a court jester here in 1 Corinthians. Richard Rohr himself sounds like a court jester in his book, uh, Falling Upwards, a spirituality for the, for the two halves of life. Uh, but it's a good book. I find it helpful, if not somewhat enigmatic, but isn't that how foolish wisdom often is? It's a little cryptic, uh, a little hard to grasp, a little like the Beatitudes. Uh, I like this book, Falling Upwards, and I'm going to draw on it heavily this morning, uh, putting this book of Richard Rohr's next to Paul's words about wisdom and foolishness and Jesus' Beatitudes. And I'm going to take the three of them and bang them together and see if they might not resonate, to see if we might find a, a spirituality for both halves of life uh, this morning. Uh, this morning's sermon may sound more like a book report than anything else. Uh, sorry about that. That's just what you're getting this morning. One of Rohr's main points is that as counterintuitive as it seems, uh, spiritual maturity comes most often uh, through something we all try desperately to avoid. Spiritual maturity uh, comes from discovering our own limits and exploring our own fallenness and mortality. The way up, he says, is the way down. So let's look a little uh, closer. Rohr sketches out for us two main tasks uh, for the two halves of life. Both are necessary, he says, both are very different. The first half of life is all about building, uh, building up a, an identity, a, a superego, a strong, confident, viable persona or public face. Uh, this first task establishes uh, professional competence and determines vocational identity. In the first half, one builds knowledge and gathers uh, certainty and expertise about the way the world works and the way we work in the world. It's about establishing and achieving. It's about accruing knowledge and know-how. We determine for ourselves the way things should work and should be done. Uh, schools and institutions, uh, academies and professional associations are all about first half tasks. In fact, Rohr would suggest, and I think he's right, our society is largely a first half of life society. And again, I want to remind you, he says that the first half tasks are important. Building that self, that confidence, that container uh, are essential. Uh, pointing out that when the first half tasks of life are not achieved, one struggles to function in the world and in society. So we need, we need first half spirituality. The first half task is all about building the container, the shell, the mask that we present to the world. It is the vehicle that we travel through the world in. It is the home we live in. However, there's another task which many uh, never get to. Many folks never move beyond the first task uh, of life. Ro uh, Richard Rohr might compare them to agoraphobics who never leave the comfort and safety of their own homes and so become prisoners within them. Uh, we can become prisoners uh, to the first half of life structures we build, the shell we construct, the mask that we uh, have created to show the world. But then Rohr is quick to point out sympathetically that we build these homes, these structures, for good reason, to provide security and to give confidence. So it's only natural to want to stay within the boundaries of what is comfortable, 
uh, and what is known. Uh, quoting from Richard Rohr, then he says, the familiar and the habitual are so uh, reassuring, most of us make our homes there permanently. The new, by definition, is unfamiliar uh, and untested. So, so often, God, life, destiny, suffering, something has to give us a push, usually a big one, or we will often not go into the new, into the unknown. Someone has to make clear to us that homes are not meant to be lived in, but only lived out from. And I like that turn of phrase that he uses. It resonates in a new way after the pandemic that we've all been through, after living for a couple of years quarantined uh, in our homes and only in our homes. Home is warm and comfortable and cozy, which is why it often takes the experience of falling or failing or losing control to be launched out of the comfortable first half task of life into what Richard Rohr calls the further journey. As he puts it, some kind of falling, what I will soon call necessary suffering, is programmed into the journey. Uh, all the sources seem to say it, starting with Adam and Eve and all they represent. It's not that suffering or failure might happen, uh, or that they will only happen to you if you are bad, which is what religious people sometimes think, or that it will happen to the unfortunate or to a few in other places, or that you can somehow, by cleverness or righteousness, avoid it. No, it will happen, and it'll happen to you. I'm not telling you all anything new. You all know this. Losing, failing, falling, sin and suffering um, that comes from those experiences, all of this is uh, what Richard Rohr calls a necessary part of the human journey. To the experience of death comes new life. Uh, falling, lying helpless on the ground offers a new radical and dependent perspective. Leaving home and going on the, the further journey teaches much, enabling the hero of the story to return with a newfound appreciation for all that home is and all that home means. If the first half task of life is all about building or creating our container, Rohr suggests the second task is all about filling the container. If the first half is all about establishing the structures that support us through life, the second half is all about soul, discovering the spirit and breath that fill the structure and make it truly alive. Uh, we grow spiritually much more by doing it wrong than by doing it right, Rohr suggests. Uh, a perfect person, it turns out, is one who, uh, can't, who can consciously forgive and include imperfection rather than one who thinks he or she is totally above and beyond imperfection. Now, the Old Testament text this morning from the prophet Micah, this beautiful vision of what God requires, the one that we used or that we based our uh, prayer of adoration on this morning, uh, to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly uh, with our God. Richard Rohr would identify this vision, in fact, most of the Old Testament, with its laws and prophets and covenant expectations, as very important parts of the first half of life, of building self and society, a crucial and necessary part. 
But remember, Rohr also describes second half of life people as those who through their own experience of falling and failing can hold law and those expectations together with mercy and compassion and forgiveness, both for themselves, which is important, I think we all know, and for others. Uh, Richard Rohr notes that we like to publicly display the Ten Commandments in our, our courthouses at the center of town. Rarely, he says, do we post the eight Beatitudes with the same kind of vigor and energy. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. Uh, these are the second half of life sensibilities, he says. When our falling comes, when we experience falling or failing, uh, Rohr suggests the religious and institutional structures of our lives are turned uh, upside down and inside out and we're forced to uh, re-examine them, to search them and beyond them for the meaning that we hope this container, these containers hold for us. Now, I'm probably doing Richard Rohr a disservice. This is a very quick uh, summary of what he says in his book, and I'm certainly glossing over uh, a whole bunch that he suggests. If I have intrigued you at all, uh, go ahead and pick up the book and take a look yourself. Uh, again, it's uh, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for Both Halves of Life by Richard Rohr. And none of this makes sense. If none of this makes sense, don't worry. Uh, Richard Rohr suggests none of it will make sense unless uh, or until you're in the second half looking back. He offers these reflections uh, to connect with those who already might be there and recognize the path he describes, but he also offers this as a, a roadmap or a guide to those who still have their, uh, what he calls their quintessential falling before them in hopes that you might recognize something of the path too when you get there. Uh, let me leave you with a picture that Rohr paints of those living in the second half of life. Uh, a picture from him and then a story, if you will. Uh, Rohr suggests that there's a, a, a gravitas in the second half of life that is now held by a much deeper uh, lightness or okayness is the word he uses. I think he may have coined that word. Uh, our mature, mature years are characterized by a bright, a bright sadness and a sober happiness, if that makes any sense. Uh, he says, I'm just grabbing for words to describe many wonderful older people I have met. If you've met them, you know for yourself and will find your own words. There is still darkness in the second half of life. In fact, maybe even more, but there is now a changed capacity to hold it creatively and with, uh, with less anxiety. It is what John of the Cross called luminous darkness. And it explains the simultaneous uh, coexistence of deep suffering and intense joy in the saints, which would be impossible for most of us to even imagine. Eastern Orthodoxy believed that if something was authentic religious art, it would always have a, a bright sadness to it. Richard Rohr likes that phrase, and I think I like it too, a bright sadness. Um, in the second half of life, one has less and less need or interest in eliminating the negative or fearful, uh, making again those old rash judgments, holding on to old truths, or feeling any need to punish other people. Your superiority complexes have gradually departed 
in all directions. Uh, you do not uh, fight these things anymore. They have just shown themselves too many times to be useless, ego-based, counterproductive, and often entirely wrong. You learn to positively ignore and withdraw your energy from evil or stupid things rather than fight them directly. You fight things only when directly called and equipped to do so. Uh, life, daily life now requires prayer and discernment more than knee-jerk responses toward either the conservative or liberal end of the spectrum. You have a, a spectrum of responses now and they're not all predictable. Law is still necessary, of course, but it is not your guiding star or even close. It has been wrong and cruel too many times. Uh, Eric Erickson calls someone in this stage of life a generative person, someone who's eager and able to generate life from his or her own, uh, his own being. Uh, and these are the people that Richard Rohr uh, paints as he talks about folks who have... Uh, done this second half of life work. I'm going to close with a story of someone uh, who might look like a fool in the eyes of worldly wisdom, but somebody who I think is one of these people that Richard Rohr is describing. Uh, this is the story of Hody Childress, uh, and this is as reporter, reporter Emily Schmall tells it. Uh, she begins with 15-year-old Eli Schlageter, uh, when the doctor saw what a hornet sting had done to Eli, causing his mouth and throat to swell, his advice to Eli's parents was unequivocal. He said, get an EpiPen. But they were stunned to learn that a single dose of this life-saving drug used to treat severe allergic reactions uh, cost, for them, $800, even with insurance coverage. At their local pharmacy in Geraldine, Alabama, uh, a farm town about 60 miles uh, southeast of Huntsville. The pharmacist there, Brooke Walker, she found a, a coupon to knock a, a few hundred dollars from the total, but Eli's mother, Bree, she still balked at the price. So to help the family, the pharmacist turned to an envelope of carefully folded $100 bills from an anonymous donor. Every month, for more than a decade, local farmer Hody Childress had made anonymous cash donations uh, to the pharmacy, Geraldine Drugs, aiming to help neighbors struggling to, pray, uh, to pay for prescription uh, medication. One $100 bill every month for close to 10 years. The first time Hody came in uh, and asked the pharmacist, he said, do you ever have people who come in and can't pay for their medication? Oh yeah, she says, all the time. Well, he gave her that first $100 and said, I want you to take this uh, and to use this to help those people anonymously. Uh, and that was the first $100 bill. And every month for the rest of those 10 years, Hody came in with another one of those $100 bills. Mr. Childress grew up poor, uh, surviving with his family on subsistence farming and by hunting small game. Their house had no electricity until Mr. Childress was about seven. Uh, an Air Force veteran, Mr. Childress worked at Lockheed Martin for about 20 years until he retired in 2001. On Friday nights, he would carry his first wife, who had multiple sclerosis, up the bleachers at the local high school to watch football games. 
Over the years, Dr. Walker, the uh, pharmacist, said that Hody Childress Anonymous Fund had helped at least uh, two people a month who didn't have insurance or whose benefits didn't cover their prescription medicine. Uh, last fall, one of the people was 15-year-old Eli Schlageter. When Dr. Walker, the pharmacist, told Eli's mother that money from anonymous, an anonymous donor would cover the cost of the EpiPen that they needed, she cried with relief. I just started squalling, she said. We're a two-income family, but still $300 is a lot. Miss Brooke told me it's, it's taken care of, no questions asked. I, I asked how, and she never would tell me. Now, since news outlets nationwide uh, reported Mr. Childress's generosity, which the family and the whole town discovered after he passed January 1st of this year, uh, since news outlets have been telling this story, his family and Dr. Walker have received calls and messages on social media from people across the U.S. Uh, wanting to, do to donate towards the Hody Childress uh, Foundation. Last week, Dr. Walker, the Geraldine pharmacist, received a check from someone in Tennessee. On Monday, a person called from Miami. He told her at the pharmacy that unless she needed the money, he was going to approach his own local pharmacy and start his own Hody Childress account. Uh, Mr. Childress was a wonderful example of generosity and maybe, maybe a bit of a fool, but the best kind of a fool. May we all strive to be fools for Christ, living with an inner brightness. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we bend our knees and lift our hearts, giving glory to God forever. Amen.